0: Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Scott Squires, visual effects art director and conceptual designer who was nominated for his work on The Phantom Menace for an Academy Award. Mr. Squires' work is an incredible journey through the history of visual effects, from working with Douglas Trumbull on Close Encounters, to working on The Mask, Dragonheart, and so, so many more. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 119. Scott Squires. What were your early childhood inspirations? What were your early childhood interests? What made you want to even pursue a career in visual effects or, or in this world?
1: Well, I had an active imagination. Uh, you know, so I love seeing things like Great Harry movies. I was also very much interested in insects because even in the Midwest in your backyard, you could see some fantastical creatures and <laughs> things going on in a whole nother world. So all of those things, when I was junior higher, starting into high school, I started thinking about different careers I'd want to do, and I started thinking, well, visual effects sounds pretty good, you know, photographic effects, some would call it, you know, in the, that era, just because it seemed like there'd be something different all the time. I was into model railroading as well, so it just covered so many different avenues. I was going to get a camera to photograph insects, and I thought, well, I might as well get a film camera. So I got a Super 8 camera that could do macro photography, but I also got one that had animation capabilities. That was the Bull 160 camera. That was a great camera. So with the stop motion, I was doing claymation and doing different types of things and some animation tests and just trying to learn. In the middle of Midwest at that time, in a small town of like 4,500 people, there's not a lot. Like you can do. So I went ahead and worked as a newspaper photographer for the local paper. We were the center of the county. That was great, educational, and I was a theater projectionist for like two or three weeks till the tornado came through town and knocked that out. So I was trying to do everything I could to prepare myself and to learn. That was the goal. Right after high school, I came out to L.A., and took the assistant cameraman's training test. I had this special opportunity, and cameraman junior was very difficult to get into. 2,000 people show up for five spots, and it was basically an SAT test, affirmative action type of thing. So in result, I didn't get in. I met a lot of people afterwards that had not gotten in either. But from there, I, I had a studio list, and I went through door to door. Now, you know, I ended up, at Cascade film talking to Dave Allen and Bill Hedges. And they said, well, you might check with Doug Trumbull. He's starting something. So I went and saw Doug. He was looking for an assistant. I brought in everything I had to show him and talk to him and so forth. I think he could see that I was very enthusiastic. So he said, okay, well, we're bidding on a project. We don't know if we have it to come back. We might know in like a month or two. In the meantime, I had to fly home for Christmas. We're supposed to go to college if I didn't get something. And But I just failed to mention to my parents, I did not have a job at that. point. I would had a couple of odd jobs. Luckily, when I got back, Doug called up and said, we got the project. So at that time, it was called Watch the Skies, which later was called uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They said, okay, well, for the movie, we need to create clouds, right? There's this effect we need to create. We could do with smoke, but all the smoke things are poisonous and so forth. We're trying to figure that out. When we pour cream in our coffee, it looks like clouds, but obviously we can't photograph through Coffee. So, we want you to try to figure this out. See if you Mm can, you know, explore that concept. So, here's a 20 gallon aquarium and $20 in petty cash, see if we can do something with the liquid. So I go to the grocery store and the hobby store and start picking up a bunch of supplies and start fiddling around in the back of the parking lot and discussing with different people, including Wayne Smith and others, you know, tried different things, adding alcohol to milk. What can I do to kind of keep them up, you know, without going down to the bottom and still be cohesive? So by the end of the week, I worked out that problem, which was basically filling the tank halfway with salt water, halfway with fresh water, so you have essentially specific gravity working with you. So if you inject white liquid paint into the fresh water, then it'll go ahead and basically billow out, depending on how you add it, and it will settle on that inversion layer, and it'll you know like growth clouds with the different pressure zones. So that's what we did, and they built a 7 by 7 by 4 foot deep, Tank, clear glass all around. And that's how we did all the clouds for Close Encounters. I was fortunate enough on that project to get in the cameraman's union at that time. And I was also ended up working as an assistant cameraman with Dennis Mirren for all the mothership shots and ended up working with Craig Jean in the model department for a while. I was shooting matte paintings, ran the animation camera for a bit. I got to be in every single department that we had doing different things.
0: So it was a huge education. And oh my that was gosh. great. This is our worst Wars podcast, but everyone listening knows how much I just love Close Encounters. It might be my favorite movie. It is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Last year, it was in between jobs, so I just drove from Texas to Devil's Tower <laughs> just to do it, and it was great. That's so incredible, because of course, I mean, Tuck Trumbull is a legend in its own right, and you worked on Buck Rogers without him, but you were able to work on Star Trek motion picture with him as well. I'd be interested in your early career, learning from him and learning from the people around you leading up to Dream Quest, what were you kind of noticing within this industry that was really burgeoning at the time and really growing within itself?
1: quite a few interesting things going on. Star Wars and Close Encounters used some of the latest motion control systems. Before that, any type of system was rather primitive. In the 40s and 50s, supposedly, they used record players to try to record camera moves. But remember, even on Star Wars and Close Encounters, those were not computers. It was just digital recorders, essentially, about the size of a refrigerator to record eight axes of motion. All that was exciting, In each project, you'd be working for the actual company, the studio. You'd be laid off at the end of the project, just like any other crew, so a lot of us then went over to uh, Rogers and Galactica and that, and then I got a call from Richard Yersich, who had been on Close Encounters, and said, well, I'm now on Star Trek, the motion picture, so a few of us went over to there and that was with another company and then doug had to come in since they've been working out too long if not accomplished a lot with star trek started looking at ways of programming well that started actually with buck rogers i actually programmed a pet computer to control a motion control system before that time i'm self-taught in electronics and computers and i built like a hundred dollar circuit board essentially computer because you couldn't really buy much apple wasn't even out yet the time i built that so anyway so i always always knew that there's a lot of potential for all of these things and we were excited about the possibility and new different ways of matting and etc cetera, etc cetera. so each project you'd have new opportunities and new potential star Trek: the motion picture i was in charge of gizmos and gadgets the r&d department so we did like the wormhole effect and you know a number but the other effects that you see in that film so just trying different things so from Doug, i learned to break down i knew how to break down problems but he would try to take look outside the box. How am I going to solve it? That was important, especially then. you had to kind of know physics and photography and anything else you can to achieve that image. Nowadays, you basically have to either learn software or write some software to solve the problem. But back then, you had to come up with some tangible means of of making thing. So for like close encounters, it had a whole, like an animation stand on its side. It's probably the easiest way. So a motorized light box that went back and forth and up and down, you know, and, and you'd have motors on it. So you just, it wasn't very sophisticated. It would just say, move over an inch during the le- next 10 seconds or something like that. And then move back three quarters of an inch. And so he had a photo cell on that and that would run to a shutter, a light shutter. And that was on the end of a fiber optics. So the light around the mothership that was blinking on and off, and that's how you get those little lines on the bottom of the mothership going around. And a few of them, like the colored ones, I did on the animation stand using a slot rigged by animation director Robert Swar. And then for the pattern on the bottom, Doug was using basically a dot pattern, two dot patterns rotating against each other, a moiré pattern. And these are fairly simple things in that day and age. Even if you went to the theater and saw a Coca-Cola display, you'd see these patterns going on like that so just trying to make use of all of those in a very controlled way those are things that i saw from duck you know because the people at Abel's were trying to make this all scientific okay well if that's going to orbit this then we need to do that and do all this other stuff that says no we're just going to shoot each of those separate it's not a big problem just try to approach it and simplify it as much as possible
0: how from there did you start dq like dqi how, how did that process happen those early projects again are really incredible I'm sure A, just learnings, but also just spearheading a company at that time must have been really incredible.
1: Yeah. Once again, a huge educational experience. There were a few of us on Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, and at that time you'd be working on a project like a year, year and a half. Somebody would get a call about from a director of photography, I need to build, do you have a stop motion controller, a time-lapse type controller? And so the guy said, well, I could build one. Two or three of us got together and basically designed and built a time-lapse controller. There was also a guy programming the motion controls there on Star Trek. We could see where things were going well, where things weren't going well. So a few of us, Hoyt and Rocco, Hoyt Yeatman was another camera person there. And Rocco Giafri was a painter. So we talked about doing some small projects on our own because we're going to be between projects. And then Freddie Gucci was an electronics person. Tom Hollister was an assistant. And his dad was an assistant cameraman too. We ended up saying, well, why don't we form a company? Just being naive is the greatest thing in the world, right? So so I go to a lawyer. We started a company. Everybody just pitches in like fifteen hundred dollars. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we were out raising a lot of money. Some of us already had camera equipment, other things that we bought. So we started up and Hoyt and Rocco and I were looking for a house to rent, you know, as we were finishing up, we could go look at these houses and we would say, okay, we want to see the garage. You know, the first thing, you know, three guys come in, we want to see the garage. So we rented a place that was like a two and a half car garage. We'd come in, we'd tear out the back wall. We insulated the entire thing, basically painted the inside black. And there we set up a matte painting stand, photography stand, and a full motion control system. So inside that, that little uh, two-and-a-half-car garage, we shot matte paintings for Caddyshack, and First Family, and probably a few other things. I'm forgetting right now. And then we also shot, like, the computer graphics, dare I say, for Escape from New York, right, which was basically a model, black models, with white stripes on the edges and for the windows. we turned that on its side and photographed that because people forget and didn't realize at that time, all the computer graphics you were seeing on TV were not computer graphics. Even at Abel's, almost everything was done by hand, people doing things and photographing things in such a way it looks like computer graphics. So we did a bunch of those things in the garage and Doug called up and said, hey, I'm going to start working on Blade Runner. They need somebody to do the specialized video displays and things. We said, great. So we got that contract and we ended up getting a 7,500 square foot building in Culver City. So we set that up and we set up mat department, animation. You know, We just kept expanding with what we had. And we got quite a few projects because at that time there were optical houses, which did fairly simple, standard type of effects. Then you had Doug doing a big project, and then Apogee, which had finished up on Star Wars. Well, the people from Star Wars, a bunch of them went north with George Lucas to set up ILM up in Northern California, and the other people decided to keep their own company, and they called it Apogee. So there were just a handful of places that could do some of these types of things. So we were doing lots of commercials for all different types of things, national commercials, Timex watches, you know, having those spin, we get the graphics for CBS, and then Dodge, just on and on with all of those. And we did V the mini series, all the motion control for that. And we did a number of different movies. We well, we did the Blade Runner graphics and so forth. We also ended up doing Blue Thunder. And I, you know, there's a lot of different projects. I'd
0: have to look at my list to see. Yeah, Buckaroo Banzai written down. Yeah, Buckaroo <laughs> Banzai.
1: Yeah, there's you know, and so we had to do certain types of things. And we did like the title sequence for one from the heart. They built these beautiful models, bridging with miniature neon in them to look like the Las Vegas signs. They didn't end up using them in the actual production, but Bob Swarth was hired to do the title sequence, so he said, look, let's do this. Now, they were shooting on a stage on Zoetrope, so that meant that the one motion control that we had built, basically a, a refrigerator size, we would have to roll into a truck every and drive it there, shoot, and then we'd have to bring back because we had projects to do at the other facility and have a night crew working for Peacemaker, We ended up being back at Heartland. We rented that stage, which was big. That was the location for Universal's Buck Rogers and Galactica. So we got set up for the longest motion control stage at that point, like 125 feet. And we're photographing models and things there. So it's always learning, trying new things. So we actually developed quite a few things. One of those for like Blue Thunder, we were reprojecting projecting onto a rear projection digitizer screen, you know, which wasn't heard of at that time, really, for the type of work we were doing. But we had to make sure our camera moves matched what was in the plate. And these days you have computer programs to do all that, but... You know, all this was built film. So frame by frame, you would click, and it would. I wrote the software to advance it and record your positions, and then recalculate what the camera was supposed to do. We also did like the clay balls in ET, when you see those float up. So I got a call from Dennis saying, "Hey, we got this thing that's a, you know we're not quite set up for. It. Could you guys go ahead and do this?" So. So we did bits and pieces from other movies as well. In terms of the motion control system, we pray had one of the most advanced systems available because we were very efficient. We would set up in the morning, zero, everything. you take your key points, record those. Somebody else could go ahead and start making the moves. And I set it up so we could display like a top view and a side view of what was going on and you could calculate all of these things while the rest of the team continued shooting and moving. Later, when I went to ILM, they were still just recording everything by hand. One had one, and so you had to have an assistant. You had to, so they'd spend a half a day recording the move for you, and, and then if you had to refine it, and you were set up then for that shot. And until that shot was finished, you couldn't move on. Whereas the way we had it set up, you can just keep going through the shot. So for the, the opening sequence for one from the heart, we had a snorkel lens, which is like an 18-inch lens on the end, test the lens, and then you've got this big tube to get really close. Well, if it's on the motion control head, like a pan and tilt head, you can imagine at 18 inches away, you know, if you just move a few degrees, that's actually moving like a foot out at the end of this thing. So I had the computer calculate the inverse so that we could just pretend we had this small camera moving around and it would move the entire rig to make that happen.
0: You go to Island, and I'd love to track that journey a little bit because you start as CTO because they didn't have soups at the time. and I'd be interested, those early things you did Later on, you you won an award for them, but it, it ushered ILM into the digital age uh, very early, even earlier than some people might realize. And I'd love to kind of maybe talk a little bit about those early days at ILM and some of those early projects.
1: Sure. So after five or six years at DreamQuest and running that and so forth and being one of the supervisors, part of the issues is when you have six co-equal owners everybody has their own ideas and some people would not show up on a day because ah, it didn't feel like it type thing and it's like it, it was starting to get frustrating so I talked to Dennis he said well we don't you know up at ILM Dennis Fair and he said we don't have any openings for effect supervisors but we need somebody up here to figure out a lot of the equipment things now Richard Edlin had left a year a couple of years earlier I forget the time frame but he, Richard, of course, was at ILM for a long period of time and had been the one who pushed all the new equipment and so forth. And he had left, so all that was kind of stagnant. So I came up there, and what that was my task, is to go ahead and develop new motion picture cameras, because all they had was the originals that they built years earlier, and to work on some of the different other projects. And at the time I got up there, Pixar, what is now Pixar, was just the computer graphics group. and another building. And they had put together this laser scanner, deduce input and output, take the film in, scan it into the computer, manipulate, and then output. So the first project there was uh, young Sherlock Holmes. That was the first one with computer graphics from ILM, really. But the problem with the scanner was it wasn't accurate enough and it wasn't repeatable enough for our need so that became a focus of mine and i i did a lot of research on all this and even when i was at DreamQuest, i could see well wait there's there's now means of taking digital and digitizing it you know or taking video i should say digitizing it, and you could do all of these things with image processing so i actually designed an image processing system at DreamQuest. we never built it but that was like guys, if we can do this, this will solve a lot of problems, right? When I went to ILM and Dennis and I would talk about this, we could see the real need for computer graphics was starting up in different areas and research and so forth. But we saw the biggest benefit was in compositing and image manipulation. I read a paper about some new codec developments. I contacted the chief scientist there, met with him at a conference and went over a bunch of things. And then we entered into an agreement with them. In the meantime, we had some projects to do, like Willow. So I flew to Boston, met with Iconics, which was a company that made a film scanner, but it was for documents. And we said, oh, okay, yeah. well, let's... So we ended up buying that, and Lincoln who was did the software for it, Mike McKenzie and did the, a lot of the electronics, and then we had Michael Bowles did the mechanical portion. So we scanned that movie in, the scenes that they needed, and that was the, where ILM developed the morph system. So that's morph from one image to another. Right after we finished that, we were able to replace it with the codec scanner. Now, I'm trying to remember the actual time period at this point, but I supervised some TV productions, commercials, and other things, and actually directed some commercials. I also did the supervision for *Hunt for Red October*, so that was a 911 type call where another company, Boss Films, was had been working out for like nine months, had not delivered what the studio needed because they had to cancel their release date. So we had a, like a 60-day window to. Finish sixty shots, or you know something along those lines. So we set up in a whole nother facility over in the Bay because all their other stages were busy, and we shot that in the smoke, similar to what we did with motion, with Close Encounters. So filled the whole room with smoke, and Ted Kronowski and Joe Fulmer developed a system where we could take models, and the models range from four feet. The 21 feet in length the submarines could take up to 11 footer and string it up like marionette wire very thin wires all that could be motorized on a crane moving back and forth on a track so we could photograph it and the camera was on the track so coordinating all of those things and doing multiple passes in the smoke once again similar to close encounters but making it look underwater and getting the lighting and so forth. And Pat Sweeney was one of the main photographers on that for us, and Marty Rosenberg was the other DP working on the other stage with the big system. And at that time, we wanted to do certain things, but we were limited. One of the shots, in terms of computer graphics, so we did some distortions and things, but one of the shots was too long, where we see, I think the initial setup with the Dallas, we transitioned so forth. So we had to film that out as two different things and then go into the optical department and put that all together. And then I think I directed the last project that we did at ILM that was all optical as such. And that was the basically show scan space race that was for a ride film. I directed that and that was all done optically. And I think that was the last project we completed that was 100% optical finish.
0: I love it. Yeah, I I talked to both Dennis Muir and Ty Ellingson about space. I think that's such a fun, yeah. Moving to your first Academy Award nomination for The Mask, right? Now we're talking as we move into the digital realm and and the things that are really being able to be experimented with. I'd love to talk both with that and then Dragonheart too are both very standouts in terms of like this history that you are just a part of. What were some of those challenges that you were experiencing on those projects? And how did you see kind of the state of the visual effects industry continue to grow? By
1: time. The mass started up. It was an exciting time. Once again, you've got computer graphics, all the potential that you see there. And so and working with Jim was great fun. So trying to photograph it in such a way, I was on the stage all the time that we were shooting, trying to figure out the basic timings of actions, because he's trying to imagine a clock and where it's going to be and how fast it's moving, things like that, or it's turns from man to wolf and you know those types of things we're trying to learn the basics of computer graphics as well in terms of what you need to photograph how much information do we need how are we getting that information and making sure that at the end it all matches up what we call clean plates okay photographing it without jim in the scene photographing it with him so that we can paint those out And those are standard practices, even from the optical days, but just trying to figure out from digital things what those different tasks entail. One of the main things with that is just getting the original plates correct. Like even for the dog, Milo, where he's grabbing the guy by the pants and doing that, we have to have a rig that gives the real dog something to grab onto. And we have to basically calculate, rough out, how big is his head going to be? How do we give him something from the pants to grab onto so that we get that? So everything has to be mined. So Jim taking off the mask on Milo, he has to reach around, but it can't be too close to the dog because the head's going to be much bigger. So you try to work all of those things and try to have as much storyboards and sketch art so that the artists can take a look at that you know the actors and so forth and understand what you're trying to do it was interesting because one of those scenes the cops have him and now they're pulling out all this stuff out of his pockets right it's this picture frame with bazooka etc cetera, etc cetera, right that's the gag so we plan to do that by replacing his pants and from the waist down with computer graphics but when we were shooting that that's the other thing i like to do is just Take a step back and look at everything. The way that they were framing the shot, we weren't seeing all of Jim. What we'd originally planned changed on the day, and that happens quite a bit. Even though your storyboards and your previs, you get there, and the director and DP, everybody's talking and making a change. So I said, okay, well, why don't we just cut off his pants? We don't see it, so we cut his pockets. The wardrobe person was not happy with my suggestion, but these, this was a zoot suit, so it was very baggy. You know, it wasn't like a regular pair of pants. It's very big, big pockets. Cut those out. So we had two essentially production assistants down below passing up things, and the actors were just pulling them out. To me, if you don't have to do something with an effect, great. You know, I'd just as soon do it for real if we can and spend our time and effort on doing the things that only we can do. So that project was great fun, and we did push quite a few things. And... All of us were great fans of Tex Avery and those types of cartoons. So that was a very enjoyable process. I was nominated for an award for that project.
0: I love watching Dragonheart and kind of knowing what's to come, but I'd be interested if you learned anything from that. And I also know like Radioland Murders was kind of a testing ground for George Lucas to kind of see what was possible. What were you kind of picking up and maybe not even realizing as the, the necessary skills for you and your team moving into episode one?
1: You know, there was Jurassic Park, which is a big deal, because that was the thing where we realized we could do soft-skinned creatures. Because that was, once again, Dennis and I talked, you know, a few years earlier from that, well, computer graphics all looks like plastic, by and large, or metal. You know, we didn't see how applicable it was until it got to a certain point. Obviously, that became possible with Jurassic Park. And then I started on Dragonheart just I'm trying to remember now in terms of production just a year or two later. And now the entire T-Rex built for Jurassic Park, that number of vertexes were now just in the head of the drag. So we'd accomplished so much or pushing it so much. And the number of shots that we were doing were quite few. Jurassic Park, I'm trying to think how many shots they had. We ended up doing quite a few more than what we had to do. And we had to have it talking. So, and they had done Casper, Terry Phillips had developed a facial animation system. So that's what we ended up using. So once again, a great thing. And we were figuring out the whole Chrome ball and gray ball type references and things. You know, none of that was standardized. When we developed the scanner, the original scanner, I suggested we deal with logarithmic for saving the data because that would give us correct sampling rate as a, you know sampling as opposed to just the linear scale so there were things that we were still learning I wrote a bunch of programs where Dragonheart used a, basically a laser surveyor tool and wrote a program for a PowerBook 180 I guess it was so I could record the data and say it from the top sites and we also added a thing so I could put in and show the model and change its size and this is all 2D just trying to figure things out in a way that that we could record data for later because at that time we were match moving by hand and by eye on the computer which was very time consuming. Dragonheart and we pushed the limits on a number of different things. As you say, one of the projects I went into was uh, Radio In. Yeah. George started to dip his toe in with Ditchall because remember these weren't necessarily Star Wars films so he wasn't involved, he could see some of the things happen, but he wasn't directly involved with much of that. But he started to do Young Indiana Jones, the series. And that was completed on video and so forth. So he could start experimenting with using digital tools to remove somebody, to add somebody manipulate what you see. And then we had the mat department doing matte paintings and things and they did it video res and sport and could turn those around quick. So he became experienced with that or got the taste in that each director gets starts getting a taste of that goes oh okay hey, well oh well i can do anything now thing is when you're trying to supervise and you're on the location saying okay well look and you've already planned on so okay this is the most effective means that we can photograph that and it's faster cheaper better at the end of the day and of course directors frequently have their own mind and say oh, i don't want to bother with all that you you guys fix it and no matter what we ended up pulling it out at the end of the day getting the shot to work and then they go oh yeah that wasn't a problem (laughs) you know not realizing that people have been working around the clock for the last you know three months trying to solve that thing that they just shot it slightly different way so George got the taste for all of that and then on that movie he, he kind of approached that the same way we're going to just shoot from the hip and I wasn't on the plate shoot because they were trying to keep it small shoot from the hip type of thing so they have scenes of a guy swinging on a rope and he's half on the green screen and he swings over the rest of the stage. So it's like, well, now we've got a roto, you know, dare I say, some sloppy approach to it, knowing that we could fix it at the end. But as always, it's not the most efficient way to do that. And then we did some model photography and other things for that. So Star Wars starts ramping up and they had different supervisors involved at different times and thinking of different things. I've been called in to help on that and basically... John Knoll had worked with basically George on all the special editions that he'd done. And of course, Dennis and then myself were the three supervisors on that project. John had started on first, so he said, okay, here's the sequences I want to do, right? the pod race, the space things. Then it says, well, I want to do the underwater world and these other things. So basically, I did clean up on everything left. So, but it included the Jedi battle, included some of the queenship things. So still some good things, you know, and included the Senate as well. So, you know, there were certain things in the original concepts and storyboards. I thought, well... Some of that I expect to be trimmed down. But, you know, I'm assuming the Star Wars, and we had, I had not read the script because we couldn't read the script at that point. And the thing with that is we, John had supervised the, all the photography, the plates, and then we just started up, and it was a lot of work. I mean, there's over 2,000 shots, so each of the crews were busy. spent three hours in like dailies going through all the things that you'd done the night, the day before, the week before as so they were running out the computer. So it was a bit of a factory, but the neat thing was it was our biggest model shop that we'd ever done. I used miniatures for the entire feed there and for quite a few of the other And We talked at that time, okay, well, should we use computer graphics? Should we do two-and-a-half-D mat paintings? Different no options. And it became clear that shooting miniatures for those things would be the most effective and fastest
0: means. So that's what we went with. Going back and watching The Phantom Menace, it is A, I love The Phantom Menace just because of the age I was and kind of the impact it had on me but then you go back and watch it now and it really is kind of this blend like you're saying of the practical of this burgeoning digital technology and people like to say oh a bunch of cg but it, it's seamless it's really seamless in a way that is incredible and then you have characters like jar jar or boss or wato that are actual characters using digital effects
1: right and i'm in like
0: five shots in yeah it's a, it, <laughs> it, said all ID, it Like uncredited pilot was that what you were I want to say yeah
1: and I was one of the, in one of the senate seats and I, you know people had a good time on that show
0: if you have any other highlights from that I mean obviously that was a very intensive project and again you're really cutting the edge every single like moment you're doing it and you're surrounded by su- such incredible people like you were saying your other soups were Murren and Knoll and then of course the people working under y'all what else were you experiencing, especially like George really pushing this new technology and pushing it further than it ever had been before? It
1: was also interesting because he'd done the previs, uh, the pre-visualization videos out at the ranch, you know, with the team of people there. And that was a mix of things. On the original Star Wars, he took footage from old movies and war footage and put together so people understood and so that he could kind of figure things out. Same way, but with simple computer graphics at that time. Since we were not not necessarily involved in that design process, and even the stunt people weren't involved, a lot of times the director of photography was involved, you're kind of eliminating, and and hopefully nowadays, you know, people tend to do that more. Because you have, obviously, the stunt person doesn't like to be told, oh, well, this is exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, just because they have their own ideas and they can take full advantage of it. There were times where we had the plates, we would make slight adjustments that we thought were improvements for the scene that didn't 100% match the previous. And then George would say, Oh, no, no, make it exactly like the previous. So, okay. And then there were times where we did that, and then they would go, Oh, you made it look just like the previous. Let's add some more to it, make it, you know. It's like, okay. so, and then times you get, caught up in, oh, well, he needs some birds here. And you got to remember with all of these things, you know, movies, you typically have the producer and you might have an intern, anybody else commenting on anything and everything. So you'd have a shot that's almost finished and somebody might say, well, what if it just had a, a little butterfly flying in the corner? It doesn't make the shot any better. But a lot of interesting things, like I say, but we had a great team and a good time with that. There were a few funny bits and pieces. One of the shots we did inside the palace, there's the queen and she's lit up in her costume. So we had to remove a bunch of things in that were not supposed to be there. And so we cleaned it up, finished the shot, looked good. And then what we thought was a crack in the wall, turns out was an electrical cord. And then when we were shooting like the Thede miniatures and so forth, one of the things I suggested, the model department looks let's break up the foliage so it's not just the standard foliage, let's, can we put some berries or something in there to break it up? You know, like, well, railroad apples and oranges and things to put in there to give it some scale and break it up a little bit. So they did that, and then they came in the next morning finding a trail of ants. As it turns out, those were just basically your sprinkles for candy, just colored different things, and so they were picking out the berries. So that's why you don't see any berries
0: in the... Of course, your work doesn't just end on Star Wars. Van Helsing is still like very, very cool. The Time Machine, another really incredible visual effects as it kind of goes on and on. But I'd love to talk after ILM and as you become more involved and invested in vr and 360 and really pushing the envelope even further and kind of your experiences and, and how you've seen vfx transform even more and maybe what your thoughts of the future of that looks like
1: after i left island and i'd been changing and so forth and we're going to move into the city and i had some other personal things here in la so i ended up leaving ILM, supervised for Fox, the Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, and did a few other projects and some other technologies and so forth. But then was introduced to VR. And of course, that's that thing they've been hearing forever and seeing bits and pieces that never quite got there. When I saw a good VR that was with the Vive system with like three demos, I said, wow, this is this is me. I'm always looking. What's a creative challenge? What's a technical challenge? And with things like shows, game makes things seem more alive because it's running at 60 frames per second, and immersion. And I also worked on some dark rides when I was working with Doug and some other things. So it said, okay, well this this is great, but all the video I see is terrible. It's very low res. It looks terrible, and I knew that. Video would play a role in that. My partner from the Puffin Designs, which was the commotion software I wrote, he called me up, he'd sold his latest company and said, thinking about doing something, do you want to get involved in We talked about a few different things and we both agreed that VR was, you know, had a lot of potential. It was just really taking off. All the investors were in it. So we set up a company called Pixvana and we raised like $20 million and then a whole team of people working up in Seattle. So I would fly up at least once a month, and work up there between there and LA. So I did all the prototyping, designing different things. And we ended up with the very high res, the highest res you can get on the headsets at that time, which is like 5.7K resolution. I got three patents for some of the developments that we did on that and trying to make it very efficient. And we ended up with the training system. So we'd go to Starbucks or go to a Company, a lot of these companies hire seasonal workers right, to come in because, oh, it's Christmas time or it's certain things. So we would do these training videos, and we also did some active shooter-type training videos where you record the location. And that was you know, always the discussion of computer graphics or VR versus real filming of that. And they both serve purposes, but the great thing about filming is it's relatively cheap. You captured the real world. So it's not like I'm looking at something because you got to remember, VR requires like at least 90 frames per second and it requires two images stereo. So for a computer system to do all that, you're going to be limited in terms of how much detail you could get, especially at that time. So we could photograph an actual location or building inside and somebody could be there showing something. And we set it up so that trainer could go ahead and just put on a headset and basically take all their videos and build hotspots inside. It's kind of like, imagine a web browser within the headset and say, okay, when they click on this part, then this should happen and play this video. And over here, we'll do that. So that's what we did. We spent like four years building that, the customers liked it, but you know the people putting in the money said, well, VR is going, but it's very slow at this point. It's not growing as fast. We always need, they need the money as quickly as possible. So they said, okay, well, we're going to pivot off from VR. We're going to come up with a different video technology for a different business application. And at that time, I would have had to move to Seattle. So I said, well, not interested. So as soon as I finished up with that, Then I jumped back into visual effects, talked to my agent, had some potential projects, and then COVID hit. So it was like, okay, everything came to a stop. So I chose to focus on getting into Unreal Engine, which is a game engine. Now, at ILM, they had basically built something for directors to start pre-visiting or doing hands-on pre-visiting. And I can remember I worked on the Hulk to help photograph some of the plates and things. I worked on quite a few other films that aren't even listed. But, so they tried to get Ang Lee to use the system. Okay, well, you know, can, you could set up your cameras and place the people and kind of figure things out, but he wasn't interested. And then for AI, with Spielberg, they built this system, I think it was with the BBC, having markers on top of the ceiling so they could see where the camera was and they could do... Crude computer graphics in real time so you could get an idea for what you were seeing. Come early 2020, by this time, Mandalorian has come out. They're using LED screens, which was something else we could see that would eventually get there, right? You're looking at these big screens going, okay, well, that's not too bad. You know, it's getting better all the time. So that and a combination of Unreal made it possible to do things that had not been possible before so i jumped in deep into unreal learning that whole system and then i was also in the bes unreal training session and then this last spring i was in the unreal fellowship session getting deeper into it so i've got a vibe system doing some virtual reality photography here in my office type of thing so that opens up another huge potential so that's A big area doing virtual production, whether it's with an LED wall or standard green screen. And they're using virtual reality, just like we had done, for doing essentially scouting. So you go and take photographs or build a model of different locations, and then the director and DP put on the headset, and they say, okay, let's try this lens from this spot, and you're doing all of that. So everything I've been doing the last few years had been tied right in. And i had been working with the game engine. I was working primarily with Unity, but same basic concepts as Unreal. So all that was a great prep for what's going on now. The other huge area for visual effects in development is basically AI or machine learning. Because now you can give it information, give it images, you can see new features with like Photoshop all the time. Okay, well, here, that's used to looking at this and spot a person and change their eyes or change anything in that. Or you remove something, starts filling it in. In the past, a lot of times, you know, you get these things and you'd say, wow, that would be great. But then when you do it in motion, you see some tool in Photoshop or something you say, oh, that's a great idea. And then you try it in motion, it's not working because it's not taking that dimension into account. And even in After Effects, you've got the rotor brush. But then, you you know, okay, well, that gets me 90% of the way. But that last 10% is really what what you need to get. So it's interesting seeing these tools come out. And, and I think we're going to see that change by big leaps and bounds at this point, just making it much easier and faster to do visual effects. And then you'll be able to deal with depth from the camera. So you're going to be relieved from having to deal with necessarily green screen blue screen a certain point for certain types of shots just like you are with the leds relieve you from doing that for certain types of shots as well
0: hearing it from you who has been able to experience really visual effects and digital creation from the start is fascinating so i appreciate the time and i appreciate you delving into your fascinating career mr squires thank you for taking the time and talking with me today sure well thank you
1: i'd like to give a shout out and thank you to my wife linda for her support and inspiration All of us in visual effects with a significant other know how difficult it can be with some of the crazy hours we work. There can be times where we're overseas for months on a project, and they are working or maintaining the home and care for the children. So big thank you to all of them for helping us do what we do. I should mention effects is a team effort where everyone plays a role in the success of the project. That includes animators and TDs to coordinators and roto artists to software support who deserve acknowledgement and a thank you as well.
0: Thank you so much again to Mr. Squires for his generous time and incredible stories. Follow him on Twitter at Scott underscore Squires. And check out his full work at his site, squiresstudios.net. The full links are in the show notes. That's all for this week. Stay tuned for next week, including upcoming episodes with Claudia Gray, Julius LaFleur, and William C. Dietz. And if right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps me out. So until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.